Welcome to the Biz News Power Hour, where we give you the rational perspective on business news that matters. And we've got a, well, an interesting show coming up for you tonight. We always do have interesting programs, but I think tonight is particularly fascinating for those in the Western Cape. Why? Well, we're going to be talking about 97% towards secession for the Western Cape, or at least that's what the United Liberty Alliance believes. That's what they tell us. We're going to be talking to their chairman, Hein Marks. More than almost half a million people who've actually signed up behind the United Liberty Alliance. Their focus, get the Western Cape to become a separate country, and they think they're nearly there. We'll be hearing uh, a little later in the program about that. Uh, also, when it comes to the Cape, We'll be finding out more on the University of Cape Town's high school. Yeah, they're going into the high school market, partnering with the Valencia Institute, who's Rob Paddock will be on our program. You might recall that Rob and his brother created a business called Get Smarter, which they sold for just under 2 billion rand to a NASDAQ-listed company called 2U. So, in other words, Rob's done it once before. He's uh, pretty confident about doing it again and with a UCT brand, well, quite a high school. We'll also hear tonight about what goes on with Mango. Uh, what are your tickets worth, if anything? Are you now going to have to find an alternative way to fly? And then, of course, this being Tuesday evening, Stephen Nathan is our uh, market commentator. He'll be giving us lots of insight. Stephen, of course, you will recall was the man who founded 10X and prior to that was a top-rated analyst on the Johannesburg Stock Exchange. I'm Alec Hogg and we'll be in your company with the Biz News team for the next hour. Stay with us. Bright Rock believes that with every change in life comes opportunity and the markets aren't any different. The daily movement in the markets mean change for us all, sometimes small, sometimes big. This daily market report is made just for you by Brad Rock, the first ever needs meshed life insurance that changes as your life changes. So let's get into the news of the day, kicking off with my colleague Nadia Swart, who has the news headlines. Nadia? South Africa's government said it reached an interim pay deal with unions representing a majority of civil servants, averting the threat of an imminent strike. The Ministry of Public Service and Administration has not specified the terms and duration of the deal. The government needs to, to curb spending on civil servant wages to meet its expenditure ceiling and deficit reduction targets, but has encountered opposition from politically influential labor groups representing 1.3 million state workers. Finance Minister Tito Mbueni has vowed that any raises must be accommodated within the current fiscal framework and other expenditure will have to be cut should a planned day freeze fail to materialize. The interim plan. So the interim accord provides for 1.5% raises and a cash gratuity for civil servants. South Africa's state-owned ports operator declared force majeure at the country's key container terminals following continued disruption caused by a cyber attack five days ago. Transnet said the declaration covers its terminals in the ports of Durban, Port Elizabeth and Cape Town because of the security intrusion and sabotage that accompanied the July 22nd attack, according to a notice sent to customers and seen by Bloomberg News. The issues continue to persist, the company said, and investigators are trying to determine the cause of the incident and the extent of the data security breach and sabotage. Transnet is taking all available and reasonable mitigation measures to limit the impact from the disruption. Container terminals are operating, but at a slower pace, and a manual system for moving containers on and off vessels has been adopted. Budget airline Mango, which announced on Monday that it would go into business rescue, has abruptly suspended its flights after it failed to make outstanding payments for navigation services to air traffic navigation services. The low-cost state-owned carrier CEO, William Ndlovu, informed Mango's customers on Tuesday that the airline would suspend its flights until further notice. Senior management and our shareholders are locked in discussions to find an amicable solution to this impasse, Ndlovu said. This is the second time in 2021 that Mango has been unable to pay its obligations to its vendors, including fellow SAA subsidiary, SAA Technical and Airport Company South Africa. What a mess. Let's find out if the markets are any better. Here's Justin Rowe-Roberts. 
The JSE All Share Index was lower at 67,300, mainly as a result of NASPIS and Process nosediving another 8% as the 10 cent sell off intensifies. In the currency markets, the rand is weaker against all the major currencies to 14 rand 85 cents to the dollar, 20 rand and 51 cents to the pound, 17 rand and 55 cents to the euro. Gold is flat at $1,800 an ounce. A Kruger rand will cost you around 28,000 rand. Brent crude is flat at $74.80 a barrel, and and the Bitcoin price is steady at 620,000 rand. Anglo-American controlled Kumba Iron Ore announced bumper half-year results with the miner declaring a record 72 rand and 70 cent dividend. All important financial line items outperformed the prior period. Kumba has been one of the best performing companies on the JSE over the past five years, with the iron ore price remaining robust over the period. Operationally, production was ramped up at all of Kumba's mines. The share price was slightly up for the day. Liberty spin-off and UK-focused real estate investment trust, Capitals and County, announced its half-year results. The results indicate that property companies all over the world are struggling and that this theme is not unique to only South Africa. All important financial line items were down on the prior period. The share was down 3% for the day. Food producer AVI announced a trading update with bottom line increasing slightly on the prior period. The company has indicated that, that its financial results will be released to the market on 6 September. The share is slightly in the red for the day. It's interesting to hear about AVI slightly in the red and certainly it's been a better pick than Tiger Brands. Any more update on that story, Justin, with the recall of the Koo canned products? There's been no update from what I've heard, Alec. Uh, the share price has remained steady. Um, but as you said, AVI has been a superior performer to their um, two Tiger brands over the past few years. And I guess this will continue if uh, food quality and these defective products keep coming up um, like they have um, from Tiger brands in the last few years. And the story with Nuspass and Process, we sold them out of our BizNews portfolio today at our at our webinar. In fact, we made three sales. Uh, that's been one of the big ones, big holdings for a long time. It appears as though uh, people all around the world now are panicking at the way that the Chinese government is attacking the major Chinese businesses. I guess it's tough when you look from the outside in, as we are from South Africa looking into China, Alec. But the sell-off is continuing unabated with all the big Chinese tech names affected. Um, So it will be interesting to see in the early hours of the morning when Hong Kong does open, if Tencent does rebound somewhat or if the sell-off continues. Well, it did have, uh, what was it, 7.7% yesterday, another 5 to 6% today. So Tencent is really in a bit of a spiral there. Uh, we can't leave Bitcoin. I know you are one of those who, who believe in its future. Uh, at 620,000 Rand is against 420,000 Rand not long ago. Um, untouched, are you any nearer now to understanding why it's jumped so in the last few days? Still no news. I have heard about people getting squeezed out of shorts. I didn't even realize that there were financial instruments to short such an asset class. But I I, I guess uh, the Bitcoin price is somewhat uncorrelated with what's happening in the general global equity market. Um, We've seen the U.S. uh, go from strength to strength, but otherwise in other parts of the world, equity markets are coming to a bit of a halt. This market report was made just for you by Brad Rock, the first ever needs-matched life insurance that changes as your life changes. Well, it's Tuesday, and that means a warm welcome to Stephen Nathan, who's our guest co-host and market advisor, commentator. Uh, I don't. How would you like to be known, Stephen? Uh, just uh, the words, the, the the voice of wisdom. Uh. I'd love to be known as that, and hopefully it's true. You know, market commentators don't have great track records. So, you know, <laughs> so I'd rather be called the voice of wisdom than a market commentator. But, uh, you know, uh, maybe I like, I think you called Pitt the most rational person, you know, and hopefully I can also bring some rational uh, perspectives to the crazy events that seem to be happening with frequency around us. Well, the insanity. Today on our uh, business portfolio, we have a, we have a portfolio for our premium subscribers. It's not an actual portfolio. It's a model portfolio, which we uh, then just help them to, um, to give them ideas on, on certain shares to buy. And today we were forced to dump three stocks. 
primarily in the first instance because of what's going on in South Africa, uh, the the way that KwaZulu-Natal has been trashed. And who knows if it'll ever come back? Uh, well, of course, ever is a long time, but certainly it's going gonna, it's gonna to take a long, long, long time for that to come back. But the other thing being in China, and we're seeing the continued wipeout now of Tencent shares in Hong Kong, and of course, the impact on NASPAS and process here in South Africa. Some people would be wanting to catch that falling knife, would you? Um, well, as you say, it's never it's never a good idea to catch the falling knife until it's kind of on the ground. Um, you know, there's 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 enormous uncertainty uh, with China, and it's it's you know it's kind of gone from the um, maybe like the interesting, the marginally understandable to the quite concerning. And you know, it it's really difficult to understand what the Chinese authorities, what their end game is. You know, and it, it it's it's concerning from a capitalist perspective and from an investor friendly country because you know if we go back maybe twenty years ago, China wasn't investor friendly. Uh, it was very difficult to operate business, and it's also quite interesting because for many years, you know, China's had this phenomenal GDP, something like growing at ten percent for twenty years, but the actual stock market did poorly. So you'd kind of think in that kind of a growth environment that you do really well investing, and you didn't. Um, and then we've had a uh, at least a ten year period where you've had uh, excellent growth. Growth growth is actually slowed, so it's no longer at the ten percent double digit growth, but it's still very healthy six six kind of six seven percent per annum growth. Uh, and investors have done incredibly well, mainly on the back of uh, technology and a uh, a stronger consumer, um, a rising kind of middle class, and 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 a moving away from savings to consumption. So it's really been a golden period for for China and a lot of the. Once again, we come to the you know, the market commentators, but some really, you know, some really strong people have been saying that you know this kind of century is going to belong to China, and it's not going to, you know, America's going to lose its dominance. And you know that that seemed credible and logical, but what we've seen in the recent past is really questioning that. And it almost seems, you know, someone sort of described it to me as uh, is 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 China trying to turn its business into state-owned enterprises? So they run for the public good rather than for 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 profit, you know. And if that is part of the end game, then sadly uh, that isn't going to be a good place to be an investor. And we are so exposed in South Africa because of NASPERS's dominance uh, on the Johannesburg Stock Exchange and its reliance completely on Tencent. Yes, yes. I mean, it's you know, listen. There's a little bit of irony over here because, in a way. Uh, and this is a bit tongue in cheek, but 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 in a way, the NASPERS problem with its its large weighting in the SWIX and the All Share Index is becoming less of a problem. So this is one way to solve Bob Van Dyke and the team's problem of being too dominant on uh, on the JSE because it's definitely becoming less dominant. Uh, and we're seeing some great performances from resources companies. So it's 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 weighting is shifting downwards. Uh, also, what's happening? What's quite interesting, Alec, just. If you look sort of at the last month as an example, Tencent is down 25% and Nuspace is down only 15%. So in a perverse way, this is another way to narrow the discount. Um, you know, so those are kind of, I guess, unintended consequences of what's happening. But you're right. I mean, South Africans have benefited enormously from Nuspace and it is uh, a disproportionately large part of the all share index. Uh, and, you know, you've gotten, we've gotten the good for, for many, many years, at least 20 years. And now there's a little bit of downside. I think we've also got to be, you know, on the one hand, uh, I think if you look at Nasbase's share price, what's it? It's probably uh, down where it was. Was hard to tell with the financial crisis, with the with COVID, but probably just pre-COVID. You know, it's sort of at those levels. So the question is, you've wiped out maybe sort of a year plus, a year to 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 14 months uh, of price of strong price movements, and we know that that Nasbase. Uh, or Tencent and the other Chinese companies have massively underperformed the U.S. tech companies. But still, on an absolute basis, you know, you haven't done terribly uh, in absolute terms over 14 months. But the question is, as you say, is it, you know, is it going down, you know, below the 2000 level and possibly lower? And at this stage, you know, it's hard to tell because uh, the fate lies with the uh, uh, the Chinese government rather than with management or uh, you know, the economy in China or consumers in China. It's just, you know, it's really completely out of the business's control. 
And the concern is that when the Chinese government makes a decision, it doesn't actually care what happens to investors. We saw that with the education company, the biggest Chinese education company going for a a, a smack. Uh, what bothers me, and uh, we've sold the Discovery shares in the business portfolio, is Discovery's investment in Pingan Health. It owns 25% of that, and that was a jewel in the crown for Discovery. But the way the Chinese government is behaving now that might actually be worthless. Uh, yes, I think you know it's going to. It's it has the potential to impact all uh, profitable businesses and profit-seeking businesses in in China. So you are right to say that uh, there's a potential risk for Discovery's joint venture with Ping An. But I think if you look at Discovery as a whole, uh, Ping An hasn't been uh, particularly profitable, although it does have high growth potential. But I don't think that uh, many investors would attribute a large value to that business within the discovery stable. I mean, I haven't seen the numbers, but I would doubt uh, it's well less than 20%, I would believe, uh, would be the value people would attribute uh, to it. So it might be negative going forward for its potential growth prospects and longer-term value creation. But in and of itself, I don't think that would be a big negative in the sort of like uh, uh, immediate future or the next, say, 12, 18 months with discovery. I'm sure there are a lot of people who would love to uh, to to back your perception and uh, view on that. And you're the analyst, so that is the one to be listening to. Stephen, there's lots of things going on elsewhere. Um, maybe the the whole airline industry in South Africa now with Mango, which should have been in business rescue initially when South African Airways was put into business rescue. Now it's been put into business rescue to get it out. Uh, is going to cost billions of rands. Uh, on the other hand, you've got people who are looking, uh, very prestigious uh, operators, business people, who are looking to buy South African Airways or at least the majority share of it. Perhaps being forced to take Mango with it is going to be a deal breaker. It's a mess, the whole thing. How, how are you reading or can you read any rationality and sense into all of this? Mm. So I think... I think, you know, for me, there's sort of two things that stand out over here. You know, the one, uh, the one that just shows the poor management of this asset by the government as a state-owned enterprise. You know, as you say, uh, SAA comprises of uh, Mango is a division. I think there's SAA Technical. So it's not just the airline as we know it. And, I mean, one would have expected and hoped that as part of the deal uh, in terms of bringing in the uh, private shareholder, that uh, you know that would have been uh, uh, an obvious uh, point of discussion and understanding you know what's in and what's out of the deal. So I would be uh, very disappointed if uh, Mango uh, going to business rescue would somehow impact that deal and means that uh, you know uh, SAA was not being privatized. So I don't know if that's been announced, but I would be very disappointed because it's really um, a basic thing that. It's part of the same business legal entity, and one would have to understand, you know, the nature of the transaction that uh, that was being done. So, so I think that would reflect really badly on uh, uh, state-owned enterprises, Department of Transport, uh, Public Enterprises, and 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 the government that they don't, you know, uh, they're not able to even construct a deal as uh, as what we would see would be a basic commercial deal. So, so, so I'll be quite surprised if that did happen. If it did happen, I'd be extremely disappointed. Uh, for me, the issue here is, you know, when I looked at it, I kind of thought, uh, you know, is it is it is it is it time to put uh, uh, the government into business rescue? Um, you know, because there's a bigger picture over here. Uh, we know that uh, SAA uh, is sizable uh, in terms of the, you know, I'm not exactly sure what the numbers are, but we know that the latest bailout was about 11 billion. You know, and maybe the bailouts to date have been it's between 20 and 30 billion. Uh, you know, that pales in comparison to Eskom, the bailouts that Eskom has received. Uh, we know Transnet uh, needs further bailouts. Uh, the ports aren't even open in Durban yet. Uh, uh, and then you look at Mango, and that's even a smaller, uh, uh, you know, um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a large number in absolute terms, but it's much smaller than SAA. And it kind of, you know, to me, it's sort of looking at, you know, this whole concept of business rescue where you have a business, an enterprise that is, you know, you know financially unviable. Uh, and, you know, uh, is unable to operate. And I would say that, uh, uh, you know, it's almost as if you look at the government, it's, 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 it's kind of a microcosm 
uh, of, of really, you know, what is happening at a bigger picture. Because in some ways, in some ways, as badly run as these state-owned enterprises are, I believe that they are relatively better run than a government department is. Uh, and we, we know they're not well run. But, you know, at least they, they, they do have to have uh, published accounts. Uh, they do have debt holders, so they have to have some more visibility in terms of, you know, disclosing information to, to debt holders, to rating agencies. And we just don't have that in the government. And when we look at these, at these um, uh, state-owned enterprises where the government is 100% shareholder, so it's kind of, you know, it's, it's, it's ultimately government just in it's a, it's, a, it's a corporatized entity within government as opposed to, let's say, a you know, Department of Health uh, that's part of government, but it's not corporatized. Um, and if we look at how poorly these companies are being managed and how many bailouts they need, uh, and then also what's interesting is that uh, um, the reports were also saying that quite a few of the uh, employees had not been paid, so that either you know uh, they were in arrears in terms of paying salaries. Uh, now that never happens in the government. The government always pays salaries, and you can just you know <laughs> it's quite interesting contrasting. You know those those two, and we know that the government is in even worse financial shape than these state-owned enterprises are. So you know it's really concerning, but I think it's part of the bigger bigger picture. It's just it's just something that's more transparent uh, that has to be reported on, and the other stuff happens, and we often don't see it. Well, here comes the cavalry in the form of the IMF. Perhaps who knows? It's uh, R. W. Johnson's been talking about that for a while. But just to close off with, it's fully it's similarly aligned. The whole story of Cape Secession. Now, Hein Marx and his group believe they're a long way along the road. They're even talking about different provinces within the new company. Uh, sorry, the new country called the Western Cape. Is it even a starter in your in in your way of thinking, or are you opening your mind to it now? So, so, so I, I think there's a couple of issues here. You know, so the first issue uh, I think is 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 um, uh, you know, can this be done? Can this be done? And uh, I have read a little bit about uh, that organisation. I think it's United Liberty Alliance, just only a little bit. Um, so, so I'm I'm not sure it can be done. But I think a lot of us would sort of romanticise the fact. And I live in Cape Town, as you know, Alec, moving, having moved down from Johannesburg in 2005. You know, and and you know, I love Johannesburg, but I must say, I love the quality of life. Uh, more in Cape Town, so I really do enjoy living here. Uh, the DA, you know, runs a uh, a much better uh, uh, government and municipality. There was a recent report; I think it was Africa Ratings did it, where they said that the metro municipalities their ratings had fallen to a, a score of forty three on average. The big seven metros, and if you're below fifty, then you are financially mismanaged. Uh, and and the Western Cape sat at seventy, and the average. Was at forty three. So I think you know, very strong track record. So you know, part of me says I'd love to uh, have a Republic of Western Cape if that was if that was even possible. But you know, clearly um, there's many many obstacles just from a whether this is even possible from a reg, uh, from a constitutional uh, perspective. Um, and also one's got to look at you know uh, uh, you know how how would it how would this work? How would businesses that have, you know, multinational or uh, national businesses with footprints in Cape Town and stores in Johannesburg, uh, you know, so there's a little bit of a of a, a emotional side, a knee jerk reaction that says fantastic idea. If I look at the practicalities, I think it could be a bit more um, uh, a bit more challenging. But in principle, you know, it it does seem interesting. I just don't think that it would um, uh, legally uh, and constitutionally be allowed to advance. But I'm not an expert in this area. Well, Guy Leach has a PhD in African airline connectivity. He's also uh, a man after my own heart because he's a media entrepreneur. He's got a, a magazine called SA Flyer, which Guy, it's got to be the toughest job. I, I thought most publishing is hard, but to be, to be doing an airline magazine during the pandemic must be the most one of the most difficult uh, uh, livelihoods to to have. We get to talk about uh, mango in just a moment, but how's it going? How's it going in the business? Well, it's tough, Alec, as you rightly point out. I mean, the magazine, the print media space has been really constricted, really cramped 
just by the general decline and the middle way of advertising revenue from print. And then of on top of that, of course, with the whole uh, general aviation industry has been under enormous pressure, particularly arising from the COVID-19 pandemic. And it's you know, continued on for, what, 15 months now. So we've been under a double squeeze, but fortunately the brand is strong and we're, we're doing all right. We're surviving. Yeah, well, the, the industry is very lucky to have you. Uh, you think somebody with your qualifications could probably be more gainfully employed elsewhere, but we're happy to have you in the media. And we're happy to be talking to you today about uh, the craziness that's going on uh, in the whole SAA Mango camp. We're here today. Mango is now going into business rescue. But, guys, I suppose the, the obvious question for outsiders is, why wasn't it already in business rescue if SAA was? That is exactly the question. In fact, it was really a travesty and a big surprise to all of us back in uh, December uh, 2019 when SAA was put into business rescue without its subsidiaries. Uh, you know, its subsidiaries are dependent on SAA. And uh, if SAA flounders and the subsidiaries go down as well. So there's been an enormous pressure on Mango to be put into business rescue, obviously, particularly with the COVID-19 crackdown. And it's always had probably the weakest I was going to say balance sheet. The fact is, though, that it doesn't have a balance sheet. Because Your it's always bank online banking session will time out in two minutes, 59 seconds. Uh, we've got, I don't know who's the crappy, who's limiting that. But, uh, you know, the interesting point is that SAA doesn't have, sorry, Manga doesn't have a balance sheet of its own because it's always just been wrapped up as a subsidiary of SAA. But that, in a sense, has been its undoing as well. Manga really just hasn't had uh, either the ability or, the, or to develop a, a balance sheet of its own and it hasn't had any sort of reserves or the ability to actually raise the finance that, um, or ancillary revenue sources that other airlines like, for instance, Fly Safe Air, which has survived the COVID pandemic relatively unscathed, have done, and Airlink, which had made a very clear policy of investing into a solid balance sheet. So those airlines have done okay during the COVID pandemic, Mango has been pretty much neglected or been the, the, the ugly stepchild in some senses of SAA. And uh, that's why it's been, it's, it's quite frankly, just not sustainable at this stage at all. How have they managed to keep flying, though? Uh, and, and, and how big are they? How, maybe we should start at the market shares in South Africa. Uh, what slice uh, of the pie, and it's a tiny pie, I guess, relatively speaking, does Mango have now? Yeah, well, the, the its share of the pie has decreased from around about 40% down to basically nothing. At this stage, it's operating two, possibly three aircraft in total. Um, and uh, it's people are just not wanting to fly it, obviously, as well, simply because they're so often getting their flights cancelled. You know, uh, on-time performance is such an important criteria for choosing which airline to fly. And if the airline is, if there's any risk of the airline cancelling the flights on you, people are simply going to book elsewhere, particularly in such an intensely competitive market as the South African domestic market, particularly amongst the low-cost carriers. I mean, we've already still, we've, we've clearly got an overtraded market with Fly Safe Air, um, um, Kalula, uh, and if you like, BA coming back into the market. Lyft now also in the market, and Mango, there's a, a glut of seats, and uh, there's price cutting. So uh, there's no real margin opportunity for Mango there either. So what about the poor souls who actually booked on Mango and have now got Mango tickets and are hoping that, the, that they're going to be able to go on holiday at some point in future with those tickets? What happens to them? I, I think that... They're going to enjoy what the industry so lovely and beautifully calls the cold comforts of a concurrent creditor. Uh, they're probably going to get this ghastly haircut. Uh, if you remember, the SAA concurrent creditors got seven cents out of the rand, and even then they're struggling to get paid that. Uh, I suspect that Mango's concurrent creditors are going to get much the same sort of uh, haircut. Uh, I think that one of the interesting aspects about this whole process, though, is that it's been driven by labor once again. And the reason labor drives it uh, is because they are essentially preferred creditors. So they're able to get their money out of the process quicker. But at the end of the day, I suspect that the uh, aircraft leasers who are already on a hiding to nothing are going to get absolutely pounded, um, as well as, well, who knows what's going to happen to the other state-owned enterprises as, lease, as, as creditors 
particularly uh, AXA and ATNS, the Air Navigation Service. But they're also, and, and of course, the sister company, SAA Technical, which is also owed off the top of my head at least uh, 110 million rand. So there, there are huge haircuts in the, in, a, in the offing all around because um, the 819 million that the government has by act of parliament now made available to Mango as part of the 2.6 billion bailout for the subsidiaries hasn't been released and even if it is released will not remotely be enough to actually save Mango and turn it around. So it's pretty much gone, but at least the way it's being structured now from Labour's perspective, being ahead of the queue as far as creditors are concerned, they must be thinking, well, they'll, at least they'll get paid, even if people down the line don't. Well, I wouldn't be that comfortable if I was them. I think that obviously they're, they're, they're really crying out for the lack of their June and now July salaries. And of course, for the salaries that they lost last year during the lockdown as well. They're talking having been six or seven months in arrears on salaries. But the reality is that SAA staff didn't get that either. In the end, most of them have got to around about three months out of the total of nine or so on average months owed. Uh, so there's not, there's not much comfort for them to think that they're going to get all their back pay and anything else due. So that 800-odd million that is going to be or that was passed by Parliament – it's effectively just going to go to creditors. So taxpayers are giving some more money to a business that has failed and has got no chance of coming out of it. Am I reading that correctly? Well, I'm a little reluctant to say no chance of coming out of it. You know, I think that if we take a long view, uh, there is a need for a low-cost carrier that is a subsidiary or at least closely tied to SAA, assuming SAA gets going, gets going. I think that's the big question. But let's, for argument's sake, assume that SAA is uh, somehow kept in the air, as it were. The, it, SAA does need a, a domestic uh, carrier to feed and defeat its own hubs. And um, it's not really, there's not really a market these days for what we call a full services carrier, you know, with a business class. Most people are prepared to put up with cramped seats and plastic food for the R45 or so from Joburg to Cape Town. Um, so there's a need for, 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 for Mango as long as SAA is around. Whether SAA should continue is a, is a much bigger question, but it's not part of the current discussion. So um, as long as governments are prepared to, to take a long view on this and the uh, then mango uh, could survive, but the cost is going to be in the order of um, the current cost estimates are in the order of five billion rand. One of the biggest problems is to uh, satisfy the leasers who already haven't been paid for as many as six months on the aircraft, and that is why uh, six out of the nine are currently firmly on the ground. So if I was the uh, part of the consortium looking at SAA, the first thing I'd do is, is cut loose Mango if it were possible, because that $5 billion liability is, uh, is not something I'd like to take on. And then secondly, if I'm going to have a domestic service, why don't I run it myself? Why do I need to have a different brand doing it? Is, what's, the, what's the sense of actually keeping Mango within South African Airways? Well, the, you, you, you make an extremely good point because the Takata Consortium has now got its own little low-cost carrier already in the form of Lyft. And we know that, you know, the CEO of the consortium, Giron Novik, is the, also the CEO of Lyft, deputy CEO. Um, and, um, so it makes a lot of sense for them to bring in Lyft as the, as the low-cost carrier into the, um, into the SAA mix and let Mango go. Uh, whether that's going to happen, I don't know, simply because, you know, government has shown a, a strong determination to protect at least some jobs and most importantly to save face by not letting yet another state-owned enterprise fail. So that's an interesting point you make, Guy. It could indeed be the sticking point. It could be the not negotiable that the new potential owners of South African Airways, because they're taking on enormous liabilities, uh, not least reputational ones, uh, by, by going into that, if they do go ahead with it. Uh, maybe that'll be the point that, that chases them away if they're forced to, to take Mango. And then what? Then what for SAA and then what for Mango? Yeah, well, I think that the Takatsa Consortium has been hugely surprised by the amount of pushback it's had from the general public about 
whether it really is a proper strategic equity partner, independent, or whether it's just a, a, a smoke and mirrors trick by government to route funding and subsidies for SAA through a, 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 another entity, which presumably will also be sucking off costs as well. Um, we don't know the answer to that question at this stage. We don't know whether the whole process is still going to su survive the due diligence, which is still pending on this whole thing. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I could fully expect that there's going to be a slip between cup and lip on the whole Tocatso strategic equity partner deal with SAA because of, of the resistance that uh, the consortium must be finding to the continuation of SAA. Really, uh, SAA, um, from a number of estimates who, who I respect, is going to cost in the order of 30 to 50 billion rand to get going back into a level of sustainability. And honestly, that's money that the, 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 the government, we, the taxpayers, just doesn't, don't have. Um, and if SAA goes, well, then there's obviously absolutely no justification for the continuation of Manga. Well, there was some exciting news to come out of Cape Town last week. And uh, we seem to be having a lot of exciting news from Cape Town recently. Rob Paddock joins us now from Valencia Institute, who is going to tell us about, well, I don't know if it's a world first, Rob, but certainly I haven't heard of too many universities around the world who are going into high school teaching. and But that's exactly what you're going to be doing with the University of Cape Town. Exactly right, Alex. So this is not a world first. Uh, universities like Stanford University have their very, their own online high school that's been running for j just over 10 years. Um, but there's relatively few globally. And UCT is indeed the first university on the African continent to launch an online high school. It's a it's an incredibly exciting partnership uh, for between the U University of Cape Town and the Valencia Institute. And really one of the great opportunities is for a incredible institution such as UCT being the number one ranked university on the African continent to extend its expertise into the secondary schooling market, which I'm sure all listeners can appreciate. Secondary schooling and tertiary sit side by side and they impact each other monumentally. Uh, and the university has decided that it, it's been long enough sitting on the sidelines and it's time to get, get their hands dirty. A hundred years ago, when I had my little uh, uh, brief, ex uh, uh, I suppose, experience with the uh, with Maritzburg University, I took accounting, which I'd never done at school. And it was horrific uh, to learn. It was only about three quarters of the way into the course that I understood what they were talking about. There were various other subjects as well, maths and stats, for instance, which we, we coming from Newcastle High School, had no clue uh, how they worked. Is that going to fill or change the gap? So if I'm now uh, uh, the younger self, my younger self could sign up with UCT High School, and then it would be a much smoother transition into the university curriculum. Is that what it's, what it's actually intended to do? That's what, certainly one of the intentions, Alec, is to create a more effective bridge between the secondary and the tertiary schooling sector. And I think it's, it's somewhat symptomatic of the way that our, our government departments are structured, but often kind of basic education believes that its job is to get students to complete a national senior certificate. And higher ed believes that it's their, their job to get people to a bachelor's degree or a postgrad and so on. And there's this massive chasm that exists in between. So there's two ways in which in which the University of Cape Town are, th are thinking about this together with us at Valencia Institute. The one is that students will be writing the government national senior certificate examination, but we need to make sure that learners are very well prepared to succeed academically in the national senior cert certificate. And one of the mechanisms that we're employing in this model, Alex, is, co is called mastery-based learning. So learners actually can't progress to the next to the next portion of their module if they haven't mastered the content that they're busy working with so that we can constantly build on solid foundations. One of the problems with the, with the traditional brick and mortar school education is that teachers always have to teach to the middle effectively. If learner has mastered a concept or if they haven't yet, if the schedule says it's time to move on, everyone moves on. And the unfortunate reality in South African uh, classrooms is that learners on average, their, their grade level understanding spans about five grade levels in the average classroom which is a terrifying prospect, especially for subjects like mathematics, science, STEM-related fields, 
if you lose those fundamental concepts and you keep getting pushed through, it's only a question of when you're going to fall out the system as opposed to if. Explain so that, that's the, Rob. That's the one. Explain that. Five grades? Are you saying that… Five grade levels. So you can, you can be sitting in grade nine mathematics and you can actually have a grade three mathematics level understanding, but you're still sitting in that grade, grade, grade nine level class. Why? Because you've been pushed through every single year because if, we, if learners stay back… Uh, it, it creates these massive clogs in the system. So there's, there's this disincentive or there's this, there's this perverse incentive, let's call it, to keep pushing learners on regardless of whether they've actually mastered the concepts of the respective subjects or not. And that is particularly problematic when you get to, as an example, your, your final ex- national senior certificate exams, or even if you get through those and you manage to get into university. Now in first year university, we've got one of the biggest issues in our country is we've got massive dropout rates of previously disadvantaged learners in, in first year varsity they're just not academically prepared and they're certainly not prepared to, to succeed in this more independent modality of, of, of education being tertiary. So there are these huge systemic problems that if we don't take a step back and think radically differently about the whole system, we're just not going to solve, Alec. Um, let, so me, I think this, let me understand this. Now, if I am a heavily unionized teacher and I have no incentive to get my students at the level that they need to be, because I'm going to pass them anyway, uh, then the system has got a fatal flaw in it. Because if I'm not uh, going to lose my job, because I'm not going to, because I'm, I'm unionized, and on the other hand, I have no incentive to, uh, because I'm passing it to, to do my job, because I'm passing everybody anyway, then there's a deep, deep fundamental error in what's happening in South African education, maybe you've put your finger on it there. This is a systemic issue for sure, Alec, um, and it's multifaceted as these as these complex issues tend to be. Um, you know, wh- one other one other uh, related point is that, as, a, as an example, in the Eastern Cape, sixty percent of teachers teaching Grade Eight mathematics cannot pass the same test for which they are teaching. Now that's a terrifying prospect. So now we've got this double whammy where not only are the teachers not not sufficiently skilled in order to teach the subjects, but actually they have no positive incentive to keep progressing to make sure that students have actually mastered the concepts to achieve a, a reasonable grade level so that they can progress to the, to the next. That's that's terrifying when you think about how that extrapolates um, and amplifies over time and the issues that it creates for us in the in the economy more broadly. So this idea of mastery based or competency based learning is not a new phenomenon, certainly certainly not at all. But it's not been properly integrated into a school system, partly because the practical realities of a physical classroom make it very difficult to provide a personalized, individuated learning uh, approach to every learner. And as you can imagine, let's say that you're already a strained teacher with 40 kids in your class, the idea that you could actually pinpoint exactly that that uh, Sipo has is struggling with, with quadratic equations, but uh, another learner is, is struggling with something different. And let me go give some personalized attention to each one of those. It's just not it's just not feasible, not only to do the diagnostics, but actually then to do the personalized teaching, teaching even if you have the skills. Digital technologies fundamentally and, and transformationally creates new opportunities to think differently about how we diagnose the, the, the gaps in students' learning and how we then provide individual remediation. Alec, it, it, it's a whole new world that I'm, I think that one of the positives that's come from, from COVID-19 is that regulators and leaders of, of education institutions' minds have been open to the fact that digital can play a really meaningful role. It needs to be thoughtfully integrated. It needs to be contextually um, um, suitable. But jeepers creepers, there is huge opportunity for us to think think differently. And quite frankly, we can't keep doing what we're doing. I think our results are, our results are a testament to that. Like we have to start thinking differently. We're failing the children at the moment. If you, how can you give a, a child a teacher who doesn't actually know uh, the subject it's trying to teach? And uh, you, you, the theoretically, if there were fewer children in the class, they would be able to help Sipo or Peter or John or whoever it is. But they don't understand it themselves, as you've said. Sixty percent of them wouldn't pass that exam anyway. That's insanity. But but okay, that's where we are. We're fooling ourselves. We keep fooling ourselves. We keep throwing money at the problem, but in the wrong direction. You've now spoken to UCT. You've got it. You've got an agreement with UCT. How does it all work? 
Mm. So, so the UCT Online High School is a is a collaborative partnership between the University of Cape Town and Valencia Institute. We have a shared governance structure. So, uh, members of the UCT University of Cape Town leadership team sit together with University of excuse me Valencia Institute leadership team on a what's called an oversight committee. Then there is a delegated authority to an operations and governance committee, which includes representation representation as an example from UCT's registrar, um, the um, dean of the Center for Higher Education Development, um, the UCT principal is a really key, key, key member there and, a, and, a, and, a, and, and two members from Valencia Institute. So this is a truly shared governance structure. There's then further delegated authority down to then the U- University of Cape Town Online High School principal, um, which we're excited will probably be in a position to announce that, that individual in about two weeks' time. Um, and then there's further um, um, authority delegated down to the UCT Online High School leadership team. Um, so it's very much a kind of classic case of teamwork makes the dream work. And we're trying to infuse the best of what the University of Cape Town can bring deep academic expertise, a, a, a strong understanding of the challenges in, in the bridge between schooling and university and so on, and the best of what Valencia can bring, which is our proprietary learning management system and student, student support model. Aren't you going a bit back to your roots from Get Smarter, the company that you and your brother established and sold off to, to you in America, in that you're now starting to play with universities again? Uh, you know, in some in some ways, I guess the answer would be yes. Um, I think one of the one of the things that I'm most thoughtful about at the moment is that so so the role of education is not only to make sure that we've got learners who are academically prepared, and that, and that to our discussion now that's really really important. But I believe that it's about more than that. It's about creating whole humans who can dream big, who are willing to take leaps, who are ta- willing to take risks and who have got role models and have are associated with organizations that make them want to aspire to more. And one of the things that I've, I've seen again and again in the Get Smarter experience is that when you allow people to associate with top institutions, it changes the way we think about ourselves and our potential. And that, if there's a gift that we need to give to South Africa right now, it's that we can have a learner in rural Pumalanga who is a formal, formally associated with the University of Cape Town, as part of the University of Cape Town family, has got exposure to Professor Mamakheti Paking in the Fireside Chat series, has got exposure to the incredible academics that exist at, at UCT and can see themselves and a new path to what their future could hold. Because now I'm associated with UCT and Jeepers, I've, I've got role models in my life and I've got exposure to individuals that, that, that make me feel like I want to aspire to so much more. So Alec, in, in many ways, I think this is, this is a um, the, the role of education again is not not, not only the, to to develop the academic expertise, but to shift the mindset and the and the and the possibility of what learners can dream of. And I believe that with a university like UCT, Jeepers, we couldn't we couldn't give our learners something bigger to aspire towards. And, and I think that's a great gift. Today is Tuesday, July twenty seventh, and this is your FT News Briefing. If you're double jabbed and you're a U.S. or EU citizen, you might be able to visit the U.K. soon without having to quarantine. Intel is hoping a rebrand will help give its chips new life, and the $30 billion deal between Aon and Willis is dead. We'll look at what's next for the insurance brokers. I'm Mark Filipino, and here's the news you need. This week, the British government will consider loosening up travel restrictions for U.S. and EU citizens, but only if they are fully vaccinated. If they are, they may be allowed to skip having to quarantine. The move would open the door for easier travel back to Britain for expat UK citizens, and it would be a boost to the tourism sector. But the looser standards wouldn't be mutual. On Monday, the White House said it's keeping the travel ban put in place by former U.S. President Donald Trump in March 2020. The Biden administration said it's because of the rapid spread of the Delta variant of coronavirus. Semiconductor makers pride themselves in making small transistors. In fact, the smaller the transistor, the better. That way, they can pack as many of them on a chip as they can. Size has driven the chip industry for 60 years or so, and for most of that time, America's Intel led the pack. But recently, they've fallen behind the likes of TSMC in Taiwan and Samsung in South Korea. So Intel has come up with a pretty simple strategy. Let's change the way we name chips so that we don't focus on size. And the FT's West Coast editor, Richard Waters, says it's not a bad idea. Chip size doesn't mean what it used to mean. Um, And this is where it gets very complex, but I think incredibly important. 
that it no longer matters entirely on the dimensions of these chips. There are so many other new technologies now that affect the performance, the power usage, the price, the density of chips. And Intel actually has a lot of great technologies. Maybe not surprisingly, they're going to try and change, they're changing the language to change the conversation about them. So they've fallen behind in packing smaller bits on a chip, but they're doing quite well in some other areas. And so they're just going to change the name. They're no longer going to talk about seven nanometer chips, which is where they're losing the game. They're going to talk about, you know, they're just going to change the brand and call it something else and hope that people focus on, you know, the overall performance of chips, not just the size. And it's actually, uh, you know, it's not a bad move. So, Richard, what else should we know about the name change? You know, Pat Gelsinger, who took over at Intel earlier this year, I think has realized that, you know, the company's stumbled. It has lost its manufacturing leadership. And this was the, you know, manufacturing was the great strength of Intel for decades. So he's going to focus on what they do well. And in the meantime, you know, as they try to catch up in various areas, he's going to try and get the market to look at what Intel already is doing well. And I think that's a very clever thing, really. It's saying, look, the old naming system that we all use and call Intel's chip 7 nanometer sounds like they're two years behind TSMC. Actually, in terms of the overall performance, they're probably six months, maybe a year, who knows. But they've got some advantages. And so scrap that old naming system that just draws people's attention to your weak point. And instead, make them, you know, think of a new brand, make them look at what you're quite good at. And, uh, you know, hopefully you can swing the conversation around. And I think that makes a lot of sense. Richard Waters is the FT's West Coast editor. Aon and Willis Towers Watson abandoned a $30 billion tie-up yesterday. It would have created the world's biggest insurance broker. The U.S. Department of Justice filed an antitrust lawsuit last month to block the deal. The department described the merger as anti-competitive. The FT's Ian Smith says Aon and Willis had three options after the lawsuit. One was to sell off more businesses, and they felt that if they had sold off more of uh, Willis in order to assuage the DOJ, that that would have really just chipped away at the merits of the deal to, to the point where it was no longer worth doing. The second would be to fight the antitrust suit in court. They feared that this would be too much of a long trial that would drag into next year. It wasn't even going to start until November, and that would really undermine the kind of merits of the deal on, on a timing basis, but also create a lot of uncertainty um, for both their clients and also their employees with um, kind of news of defections to their major rival. So they chose the third option, which is to walk away. And that meant Aon is going to be paying a $1 billion break fee to Willis. So it doesn't come without a cost walking away and also giving up a lot of the synergies and other benefits that they said would come from the deal. But looking at it, Comparing it to a lengthy trial, comparing it to further disposals that, um, you know, undermined the uh, rationale in their, in their view for the deal. This is what they've gone with as the least worst option. Ian Smith is the FT's insurance correspondent. You can read more on all of these stories at FT.com. This has been your daily FT news briefing. Make sure you check back tomorrow for the latest business news. Hein Marx is the man behind the United Liberty Alliance. And this is an organization that has been working for some years. He'll tell us all about it in a moment, though, uh, to help the Western Cape become a separate country. Hein, we've heard a lot about the Cape independence movement. I've spoken to those guys a few times. But you have actually been at it for a lot longer. Tell us a little about your background and uh, before we we get on to the whole independence issue. Uh, where, what, what quality are you a professional? Okay, well, let's let's first just go one step back. Uh, we don't work for the for the independence of the Western Cape. We work for the independence of basically all the areas in South Africa where the minorities is actually the majority, which effectively includes okay. the Western Cape the whole of the Northern Cape, and a part of the Eastern Cape, or in the old terms, the old so-called Cape province. But it also includes an area up of the Western uh, Free State, uh, 
uh, and it well it used to include also the, the the part going into the Transvaal, including Pretoria, uh, with again the the minorities is in, in total majority. But we've um, basically left that because they call it or they and I say they they called it the Trans Oranje area. Um, but we were asked by the organization up there, the Afrikaner Strategy Committee, um, to basically, you know, we work with them, but they they deal with that part of it. Just unpack it for us. So you, you clearly believe this is legally possible. When talking to the Cape Independence Movement and, and Helen Ziller, indeed, she said it uh, to her understanding, it wasn't possible. It, it was intriguing as, an, as, a, as a suggestion but that the Cape couldn't succeed. Now, you're talking about something bigger than the Western Cape. And just very in a nutshell, are you going to be challenging the South African constitution or is it a global or an international um, approach that you'll be using? Now look, um, the, the reality is, and I don't even want to go to, to Helen Ziller, because when um, Peter Marie and myself had a meeting with her in her office, and that was about, I think, about five years ago, um, and we mentioned Article 235 of the of the Constitution that purely talks about self-determination. She wasn't even aware of it. So now, five years later, I must believe her if she says it's not possible. Mm. And then my question, a question to, to Helen Zilla is, Helen, you've already proved, and we've got it on paper, where she then said, oh, she didn't know about Article 235. She's got to get mm. the legals, legal people of, of, of the DA one of the advocates to look at it and, and he'll write a report for her. And then she mailed that report to us. Wow, she didn't realize it. And now she said it's not possible. I might be, I might be uh, putting the wrong words in her mouth, but it, I certainly got that impression that she felt it wasn't legally possible. So it's Article 235 of the Constitution. Okay. And it is possible. Well, Article 235, if, if you look at Article 235, that's basically just a premise to say that uh, – in our constitution, it is specifically talked about, so it's, an, it's legal. But your question was, um, are we challenging the South African constitu the constitution uh, or international law? And no, we're not challenging anything. We are literally using and utilizing the South African constitution, and I can quote it, Article 231, 233, and in a much lesser extent, but also Article 235. And then the process that we are following is following international law on secession. So there's absolutely nothing illegal that we're doing. We've got senior councils, in fact, one QC uh, also involved. And no, it's not illegal at all. If it was illegal, I can guarantee you... Um, I wouldn't have been talking to you here now, not after eight sure. years in, in public. It's definitely not illegal, no. But we do know that South Africa is ruled by a political party that is a centrist, socialist, um, politically aligned organization, and that together with the EFF, the ANC would be able to change the constitution. Is that a threat to your plans, i.e. you can you go to court, you get along uh, uh, to this point, that, and, and you can tell us when on the timing of that, but then just as you're about to execute, uh, there's a change to the constitution that is politically driven, which stops that. Alec, put it this way. Um, you know, I always say that, that um, arrogance is one of the most dangerous things in the world. Now, if you are that arrogant, yes, and I'm talking about the ANC government here, directly straight. The arrogance of the ANC government is astounding, unbelievable. Because the more we give them the information that we are working on, the more arrogantly they ignore it. Meaning, your question is, if they change the, uh, the inter, uh, uh, constitution tomorrow, does it prohibit us from seceding and my answer to you is no absolutely not because a legal in this case an international legal process of which the south african government is part of the documentation and this is the so-called exhaustion of all internal remedies is nothing else at the end of the day it's nothing else 
than a thick file of documents to and from the government. So if they want to change the constitution, my first reaction to you would be, and that's why I laughed, which articles are they going to change? And the, then on what basis would they like to change them? So the more they try and do these things, the more they play into our hands here doing the legal process. Are you lobbying any country to support you? You said earlier that just one country has to agree to your independence. Now look, um, the interesting thing is we, we and, and you're using the word lobbying. No, we don't, we don't lobby any country, but obviously we talk to a lot of countries because this is a, uh, it's an extremely sensitive thing um, in terms of international politics for countries to support something um, a group of people in one country while they are still working with that country. And my answer to you is, no, we're not lobbying any country, but we have already got more than one country that will support it. And that is the first time that I'm saying this now, that will go public, we do. Well, thanks for being with us tonight. From me, Alec Hogg, and the other members of the Biz News team, we look forward to being back in your company again tomorrow. Until then, cheerio. You've been listening to the Power Hour brought to you by the team at Biz News.